All right, I'll say this again. I said it last week. There's several new faces, so we'll do a little bit of review. The bread and butter of Grace Community Church, what you're going to see 95% of the time on Sunday mornings at this local church is us walking through books of the Bible together, passage by passage, working through God's Word. Periodically, we're going to break in with these little short series to address uh, things that need to be addressed in this local church. And so today is, is week two of one of these short series on church membership. So that's where we're headed today. We're continuing where we left off last week. And before we dive in this morning, we're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to use His Word in this local church. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to You and we, we sing and praise Your power to save this morning. God, help us to remember that. God, the glory of you exalting yourself in our lives as the Savior. You could have exalted yourself as the just judge and punished us through eternity for our sins, but you removed them from us and laid them on Christ. God, we love you. Lord, we praise you for your beautiful work of salvation. And because of what you've done, Lord, we belong to you. We are your church, your disciples. And we come today to you as your disciples. And our prayer, Father, is that you would teach us how to think. God, that you would train our minds, Lord. Train us how to view the world that we live in. God, teach us how to define all things from your word. God, we pray that you would bless the teaching of your word this morning in Grace Community Church. Come help us. Come help us, Lord. Cause your work to bear fruit in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright. Church membership. Church membership. Week number two. Okay. We're going to review some of what we covered last week. I didn't plan on much of this, but there's, there, there's a lot of you here that didn't hear it. So we are pressing in. The biblical church membership at Grace Community Church. We're going to, to propose making, even making some changes in the way that we do membership at Grace Community Church. So we're teaching on these things for a reason. Teaching on them for a reason. Last week we defined church membership, and I'll give it to you again. Okay? We said that the very essence, getting at the very core of what it means to be a biblical church member can be summed up in two words, mutual commitment, mutual commitment. And that means that church membership is not mainly about your name being on a roster of a group of people. It's not mainly about where your body gravitates on Sunday and where you attend a local church. At its very core, it's who you are committed to, okay? Mutual commitment between a disciple of Jesus and a local church. So mutual, both sides. A disciple of Jesus commits to a specific local church. That they are a part of this local church. That they submit to this local church. That that is their responsibility to build up and equip this local church. To partner in the gospel with this local church. And then the other way, the local church affirms this is actually a disciple of Jesus. We see that he has or she has believed the true gospel. 
and been transformed by God the Holy Spirit. And we now take responsibility for this disciple. We take them under our care to love them as Christ has loved us, to encourage them, to see to it that they persevere to the very end. Mutual commitment. Okay? So think about this. Unless you define church membership and in some way to get at the very core of commitment to a local church. What it means to be a church member apart from commitment is completely worthless. You think about that. What good is it to have your name on the list if you're not committed to that group of people? What good is it, brothers or sisters, in Christ Jesus to gravitate to this local church on Sunday, this local church on the next Sunday, or this local church for several Sundays in a row, unless you are committed. This is the body of Christ that I will partner in the gospel with. These are the leaders that I will honor and submit myself to. This is the people of God that I will build up through the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given me. Apart from that, apart from that commitment to a local church, church membership is meaningless. It is absolutely meaningless. So what we're going to see today is that church membership means something. Okay, It has to do with being committed to a local church. And we're going to see Jesus define just how deep this commitment goes for one another in the body of Christ. Listen to this quote from Mark Dever as we get started. Okay? Let this prime the pump of your brain this morning. He says, Do our obligations to each other involve merely encouraging each other positively? Or do they also include a responsibility to speak honestly to one another about faults, shortcomings, departures from Scripture and specific sins, and could our responsibilities before God also include making such matters public? So you think about it. This is getting into how deep this commitment runs. Is, is that biblical? Okay? That's, what, that's the question that we're going to answer this morning. Does our responsibilities toward one another at Grace Community Church, do they exceed that positive encouragement? And is there ever even a time that we would be commanded by God to make someone's shortcomings public? And the answer to this question is the topic of church discipline. Church discipline. This is what we're going to talk about this morning as a local church. We want to hear it, not just for information's sake. This is Jesus teaching His disciples, and we're disciples. So we want to... We want to hear Jesus' word and we want to turn around and obey our Lord Jesus. We want to obey Him in His church. If Jesus is not obeyed in His church, where is Jesus Christ to be obeyed? We want to obey Him as a local church of what He teaches us in Matthew 18 in relation to church discipline. Church discipline, this is where we're headed. Church discipline in Matthew 18 is laid out to us. And several stages, and we're going to walk through those, okay? But it's most commonly defined by that final stage of church discipline. That's what most people think of when they think of church discipline. The final stage of, ex of, of excommunication. So let's define that. 
Let's wrap our minds around that first and then we'll work our way backwards. What is church discipline? In its narrowest sense, at the very final stage, it is the congregational act of removing a professing Christian from membership in the local church in response to unrepentant sin. I'll say it one more time. And it's narrow sense at its final stage, church discipline is a congregational act in which a church removes a professing Christian from membership in response to unrepentant sin. So let's, let's back up. So leave that there, sit that to the side for just a moment. Last week we said that church membership was like a dividing line between the church and the world. You remember that? And we said that Jesus wants it clear. He wants it really clear who's with Him and who's not with Him. And church membership is supposed to be an accurate representation of who is with the Lord Jesus and who is not. Okay? And, and so think about that. There's that line that's supposed to divide humanity in two of who's saved and who is not. And what, what church discipline is, it, it is, it is a gift of Jesus Christ to His church it's a mechanism to purge the church of Jesus Christ from false converts. Okay? That you have periodically, you have at times, some who creep across that line into the church that you find out later should not be in this group. And so Jesus gives His church a mechanism to remove them back where they should have been in the first place. This is church discipline at its final stage. Okay? It keeps that line vivid. It keeps it sharp. And you have to ask yourself, why in the world would a local church ever do that? Why in, a why in the world would a local church ever do this? Okay? We, almost nobody in this room, and I know because I've talked to you, almost nobody in this room has seen this practiced in a local church. You know it's in the Bible because most of you have read the scriptures, but very few of you have seen a group of disciples of Jesus come together and say, we want to obey this. We don't just want to read it. We want to actually go after this in a local church. We believe that Jesus is wiser than we are. We believe that Jesus loves more than we do. We believe that Jesus knows how to build his church. And so we want to get under the wisdom of Christ. So I want to encourage you just, just with some thoughts, okay? We live in a culture where this is almost never done, okay? But I just want to encourage you with this. That has not always been so in America. Not always been so. So I, I'll just give you some stats. This is from a church history professor at Southern Seminary. He says in pre-Civil War America, okay, Baptist churches in pre-Civil War America excommunicated 2% of their membership annually. Okay? Try to, try to wrap your mind around this. That's, so now almost nobody does it. But at one time in this nation, there was a faithful church that did do this. 2% annually excommunicated. That's not talking about all the other stages of church discipline, but that final stage of removal from fellowship in a local church. That's two people every year for a hundred member congregation and ten people a year for a church of five hundred people. Can you imagine that? Okay? Two percent annually. And then some of you might be thinking, well man, 
That's not the church I want to be part of, kicking people out left and right, okay? So, so, so leave that there and then come back to the other side. Those same churches grew at twice the population growth in America. At the same time that they're purging off false converts, they're growing twice as fast as the population in America. So what does that mean? That means that they're not just having babies and bringing them into the church and reproducing Christianity as a family thing. That means they're evangelistic and they're bringing people into the kingdom of God. They're healthy, growing churches. So church discipline is not a mark of a dying church. It's a mark of a healthy, strong, growing church because it keeps those lines pure. It shows the world that, that it really means something to be a Christian. That the gospel of Jesus is a distinct work in the soul of man. So I'm encouraging with that. This is something that can be recovered. And the only thing that's stopping us is submitting to Scripture. If we are willing to submit to what Scripture has said, this can be recovered in our generation. Okay? So I want to encourage you with that. We can learn and obey our Lord. Why? Why would a church ever do this? Why would a church ever remove one of its members from its midst? I'll give you three answers. And the first is the ultimate answer. And that's to protect God's holy name. A church would do this to protect God's reputation on planet earth. Okay? You have to understand some things. The church is the body of Jesus. People are supposed to be looking at the church. His body, it represents the Lord Jesus Christ. If that body is filled with impurity and unrepentant sin, it blasphemes the name of Jesus. This is exactly what happens in Romans chapter 2. There is a group within God's people that preach God's law but refuse to obey God's law. And Romans chapter 2 says that it has the effect, listen close, that God's name is blasphemed among the nations. Think about that. Everything that God designs for His people and for His church. God's supposed to be so at work through His church that God's name is hallowed to all the nations of the earth. And instead, God's name is blasphemed. Those Christians are hypocrites. You see this. That can happen in a local church. And if it happens in, in this church or any local church, we fail our mission. We no longer have any reason to be on this planet. Think about that. If we blaspheme the name of Christ among the nations because of our conduct, we no longer have a mission. You see that? It's like good luck calling the nations to repent and believe the gospel if we refuse to do the same thing in the body of Christ. And so church discipline is a good thing because it protects the reputation of Jesus Christ on planet earth. Now, as I'm saying that, there ought to be something inside every disciple that you want to do that. That you are zealous that God's name be hallowed. Not blasphemed. This is the same zeal for God's name 
that drove our Lord in John chapter 2 to pick up a whip and drive out the temple. Zeal for God's name overtook the Lord Jesus. Same thing in every one of his followers. There ought to be some zeal in our hearts to protect the reputation of Jesus Christ among the nations. Not only does church discipline protect God's name, but it also protects local churches. Local churches. You say, what do you mean? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the context of church discipline, unaddressed sin is compared to leaven that works its way through a loaf. Okay? And the warning is that if we don't address sin, it's not going to stay isolated. Okay? That's the worldly wisdom. Just set it off to the side and leave it alone. Okay? Let sin go. But God's Word tells us we don't let it go. Why? Because we know from God's Word that that thing is going to grow unless we address it in a local church. So it protects not only God's reputation, but the brothers and sisters that you love from being defiled by unaddressed, unrepentant sin in a local church. And not only that, church discipline is a good thing because it actually seeks to restore the one who has wandered off from the truth. Worldly wisdom says let them go. Let them figure it out for themselves. Let them swim for themselves. But God's word commands us to go after them in love. In love. So with that thought, I want you to turn to Matthew 18. And I want to stick with that motive of loving your wandering brother or sister. And I want to draw your attention to verse 12 before we get into our text this morning. I want you to think about this question that Jesus gave his disciples in verse 12. And I want you to think about what your response would be to this question. Verse 12, Matthew 18, Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Let's think about this for a minute. The way that Jesus asked this question, the implied answer is yes, Jesus. Yes, that man leaves the ninety-nine on the mountains. And goes after the one that goes astray. That's the, that's the answer that he is implying. But here's the problem. Disciples are not on the same page. Okay, Jesus is asking this question to teach them something. Something countercultural. Something counterintuitive. So this is going to be one of many examples in the Gospels. Where Jesus teaches about his upside down kingdom. About his kingdom has a value system that is completely flipped and opposite of the kingdom of this world. His kingdom has a, a set of priorities that are completely opposite of the priorities of this world. So listen to this. If you are honest, if you are honest, our gut response to Jesus' question, does he not leave the 99 and go after the one? We say, 
God responds, no, you don't leave 99 to go after one. That's counterintuitive. You think about this. I want to give you just a couple examples to drive this in. Do you, carrying $101 bills in a windstorm across a parking lot, one blows out of your hand, do you lay the 99 on the ground and go chase after the $1? You see that. The gut reaction is, you know, it's sad that that one blew away, but I got 99 still in my hand. I'm still doing pretty good from where I'm sitting. There's something counterintuitive to what Jesus is teaching us here. Think about that. You still have 99 safe sheep. If you leave those 99 on the mountains, you might come back to a hundred lost sheep. Okay? You're doing pretty good in a worldly sense with 99 and only one wandering off. So this is what he is teaching us. In his kingdom, it's upside down. It has a different set of priorities. There is no one in the kingdom of Christ. There is no sheep in the kingdom of Christ that is without value. There is none who walks off from the fold that does not get pursued. Not one. Not one. This parable and this question provides the context to us for church discipline in Matthew 18. It is not legalism. It's love. Do you see how he frames it up here? This is not anything other than love. This is a rescue mission. And so what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 18 is that when our brothers and sisters wander off, we go after them at great personal cost. At great personal cost. Every single sheep is valuable to the shepherd and we pursue them. The world says... They shouldn't have wandered off. It's their own fault. Christ says go after them. Go after them. Pursue them. Every single sheep. Which brings us to our text. Matthew 18 verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is church discipline. I want to frame this up as a necessary part of the disciple-making process for every believer. Discipline is necessary for you. And you say, why? Because every one of us have sins, blind spots, weaknesses. And we need to cast these things off. We need to be confronted about sin in our life. It's just a normal part of the process. Okay, This is not an extra, extraordinary thing. This is part of the daily rhythms of life in the local church. A healthy local 
church. We all need not only to know the standard. Think about this. It's not enough to get the passage right and for us to know what God's Word says week in and week out. It actually matters how we live. It actually matters how we turn and respond to what God's Word says. And so we, we need to be exposed to the standards of God's Word, but we also need to be held to those standards. That's church discipline. For every single believer. And that means that sin must be confronted in the local church. It must be confronted in the local church. This is an obedience to Jesus Christ issue. Okay? This is not, well, some think it this way and some think it this way. Sin has to be confronted in the local church. So let's talk about, let's, let's cut off some, some satanic, you know, uh, counters to, to, to God's Word here. Okay? We know what's creeping up already in some of you that may be listening. We know it. We've heard it before. What's creeping up in the back of the mind is that doesn't sound loving. That doesn't sound kind. You're judged. That's not gracious. And all of a sudden, the most abused Bible verse in the history of mankind comes flying from back of the room. And what is it? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Sir, don't you know that that Bible that you're preaching from, it says, judge not, lest you not be judged. Don't you know that Jesus said that? You're not supposed to be judging anybody. And so I want to help you think through this. I want to help you think. Some of those things can land on us. Is this loving? There's nobody more loving than Jesus. Agreed? And He commanded us to do something here. So think about this. Paul Washer responds when he's sharing Matthew, uh, sharing the gospel, and somebody responds to him about, Judge not, lest you not be judged. His response is, Twist not scripture, lest you be damned. And I want to make us aware of that, okay? That, that it is a dangerous thing for the soul to take a verse out of Scripture and rip it from its context. And here's what I mean. Matthew 7, 1, there is absolutely no chance in the universe that Matthew 7, 1 is a commandment that we are not supposed to co confront sin in the body of Christ or confront sin in anybody else. No chance in the universe. You say, how do you know that? The answer is context. Biblical context. Look, look, look at this with me for a minute. Matthew 7 verse 1. What, what does it mean? It can't mean that. can't mean that. Five verses later, in the same chapter of Scripture, five verses later, Jesus tells us to remove the speck out of our brother's eye. Can't mean that. He wants that speck to be taken out. He just don't want there to be hypocrisy when you do it. You see that? Not even 15 verses later in the same chapter of Matthew 7. Jesus wants us to judge who's a false prophet. Based off the fruit of their life. You will know them by their fruits. He wants you to make a judgment. He wants you to discern. He wants you to confront and make a judgment about sin in somebody's life. This is obvious from the context. Matthew 18, same book of the Bible. We just read this passage. That Jesus not only expects, He commands that sin is confronted in the body of Christ. And so Matthew 7, 7-1 cannot, cannot mean that. It simply 
cannot mean that. What does it mean? It's forbidding something. Okay? Matthew 7 is forbidding us from judging with a harsh, sinful motive. We know that from verse 2 right after it. With the measure you judge, it will be measured back to you. So, so, so we all know this. We all know that there is such a thing as a wicked fault finder who sits back and enjoys rubbing it in people's face. Doesn't want to see them restored, just wants to shove their sin in their face. We know that that can happen. And Jesus forbids that. Church discipline has nothing to do with that. That is destructive. That is satanic. Okay? That fault-finding, harsh, hypocritical judgment. So what he's calling us to in Matthew 18 has nothing to do with that. It's redemptive. It's redemptive. The confrontation that we see happening in Matthew 18, the aim in verse 15, is to win your brother. Not to lose him. That's not the goal to kick people out. It's to bring them back in. It's not to shove their sin in their face. It's to restore them to repentance. Okay? This is what Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 18. It's presented to us in four different stages of severity. And I want you to notice two things about them before we unpack each of them. Now, first, I want you to notice that the trigger, what moves you from stage one to stage two to stage three to stage four? And the common trigger in every one of those is what he calls a refusal to hear. Luke has a parallel passage that teaches the same thing, and he, he calls it a refusal to repent. And so the trigger that moves you from stage one to stage two to stage three to stage four is, is a lack of repentance. So I want you to see the grace that, that Jesus gives us here. This is not harsh. This is gracious. Church discipline stops the very millisecond that a sinner repents. It goes no further than the very millisecond that a sinner hears, listens, and, res and responds and repents. This is a gracious thing. Not a hateful, legalistic thing. The second thing that I want you to notice is how small the circle is initially. God graciously, He keeps this circle as small as possible for as long as possible. You see that? So it's not, church discipline is not trumpet blast from stage one. Okay? That is not the intention. He keeps it, personal sin and failure, He keeps it as private as possible to produce repentance. Okay? The public announcement that we see in stage three, stage four... This is a last resort for a local church to produce repentance. This is grace from Jesus. This is the grace of Jesus Christ pursuing wayward ones. So let's dig into stage one. I'm going to call this the private rebuke. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. <clears throat> Alright, a couple of questions I want you to think about and answer. What do you rebuke? What do you rebuke? And here's where I want to expose what we call a textual variant in verse 16. And here's what I mean. 
There is really good manuscript evidence that the word against you are not in the original text. Which would make the original text read like this. If your brother sins, go tell him his fault. Which is exactly how the New American Standard Bible translates verse 15. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. This is in perfect agreement with Luke 17 verse 3. And I believe that this is right. Okay, That might sound like a small thing. But I want to tell you something I see here. Okay, The words against you might carry with it the idea that you would only do this if there is interpersonal conflict in the body of Christ. That somebody does something directly to you. Okay, But if those words are not in the original, and I don't think that they are, then it means that the scope of what we rebuke in the body of Christ is broadened out to general sin. Not just sins against me, but sins in general that I see in my brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, this is exactly what Luke 17 says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. This is what we rebuke. We rebuke sin. Okay? And I want to qualify that with one word. Unrepentant sin. Okay? We have no business rebuking our brothers and sisters that have confessed, turned from, and been forgiven of their sin. No, no need for rebuke. Why? They've already been won. They've already turned back. Okay? We rebuke unrepentant sin in the body of Christ. We confront it. We confront it. Who does that? Who does the rebuking in Matthew 18? And this is amazing to me. I cannot get over this. I cannot get over what he is teaching here. This passage says absolutely nothing about church leaders. Not a, not a whisper of it in this passage. Do you see that? Do you see anything about pastors, elders? If somebody sins, pastor rebukes them. Nothing. Nothing there. This is certainly part of mine and Ryan's role as we shepherd the body of Christ. But listen. To Jesus' teaching. He envisions, the church that Jesus envisions, is every single member, every single disciple, every single sheep, so concerned about the others around them, that when one wanders, they go after him with the word of correction. Every single member is responsible to give correction when they see a brother or sister in unrepentant sin. Now I want to say this. Grace Community Church. I believe that God has helped us to, to love one another tremendously. But I will, tell, I will be the first to tell you that this is an area we, where we can grow tremendously. Exponentially. We grow into the likeness and obedience of Jesus. That when one wanders off, we go after them with a loving concern to correct them. Every single member. Can you imagine that? A local church where every single member is concerned for the other. Not just concerned, but, but committed. I'm not just going to think warm thoughts about you when, you when you try to slip out and walk over the deep end. I'm coming after you. Can you imagine that? Working its way through a local church. Every single member, when there is unrepentant sin, there should be a private rebuke. A private rebuke to ignore that. It's to be in disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. To ignore that as his disciple is to reject what he just told us to do. Okay? 
That's not an option for us. Every member is involved with this ministry of correction in the body of Christ. Now I know different personalities all across the church, okay? Some, few, but some are thinking, man, I can't wait to rebuke somebody. And that's a sin in and of itself, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But you know, <laughs> it's true, okay? But the more common response is, I can never do that. I can never do that. I can never see myself doing that. And there are several reasons, several conversations privately that we have with ourselves. I could never do that. It doesn't seem polite to me. Okay? Or another way to say that is, that's none of my business. That's just none of my business. I'm doing my thing over here. That's happening over there. It doesn't affect me, so it's none of my business. And it might seem polite in a, in a southern worldly way that you're, that you're staying out of other people's business. But a more biblical way to describe that is that's indifference. So it's not mainly, the reason that we don't rebuke is not mainly because we're just staying out of other people's business. The main reason, we, a better, a more biblical way to say that is we just don't care. We just don't care. My brother and sister is walking and feeding themselves at the table of this world. And I'm filled with indifference. I'm consumed with what's going on with me and my life. And if I were to be really honest, I just don't care. I just don't care enough to go after, after them and give them a word of correction. This sounds dangerously close to Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, where God comes to Cain. And He says... Where's your brother Abel? And what does he say? He says, am I my brother's keeper? Translation, none of my business where he is. I'm not responsible for him. Do you see how close that attitude is to that wicked sin in Cain? A lack of love for his brother. So that's one reason that we can hide behind this politeness and not rebuke. What would be another reason? Sometimes we can have a private conversation with ourselves of, you know what? I'm just too sweet. I'm just too loving, too sweet. I can't ever imagine myself doing that. Don't you know how sweet I am? Okay? This can happen. That you, that because of your personality, because of how you are wired, you can't even dream of obeying Jesus in this area. And so what we want to do is we don't want to say, oh, you're just so sweet, sister, so sweet, brother. We know, we know you're just so sweet. You can't obey this, so we'll take care of it for you. We want to expose that private conversation in the soul as sin, as sin. Because biblically, what's true? The reason we don't rebuke people is not because we're so sweet. It's because we're not loving them. It's not because we love them so much. It's because we love them too little. We want to help people think that way. Listen to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. Please turn there. you got to see this. Leviticus 19, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You're thinking, amen. I want to do that. Very next phrase in the Word of God. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. New American Standard, New King James says, you shall rebuke your brother, lest you incur sin. 
So catch, catch what that verse just said. Don't hate your brother. Rebuke him. Read that backwards. If you refuse to rebuke him, what does God's word compare that with? Not you, you're, just, you're just a little too nice. You're, that is an act of hatred towards your brothers and sisters. To refuse them correction. When you see something in their life and you refuse to give it to them, it is an act of, not of love, not of sweetness, it is an act of hatred. This is what God's Word teaches. Every member of the church is to be involved with correcting sin in their brothers' and sisters' lives. Every single one. What is a rebuke? What is a, what is a correction? We'll define it like this. It's to convict someone of sin by convincing them of sin. You want to show them two things. Number one, that they sin. Number two, that it's wicked. Okay? It's not just about establishing facts. This is about someone coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That you convict of sin by convincing a brother or sister that they sinned. If they sin, go tell them about their fault. That's a rebuke according to God. There's no way around it. Okay? This has to happen in our life or we are disobedient. Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, pray. And then he says, but don't just pray that the wanderer would see the light. Take the light and go shine it in their eyes. I think that's a good encouragement. That what Jesus is calling for and commanding here is not this passive Oh, I hope the Lord gets their attention. Oh, I hope they see the light. Oh, I hope God restores them to repentance. It is an active initiative that I am moving forward and I'm about to say some things about God's standard to my brother or to my sister. This is exactly what Paul did to Peter in Galatians chapter 2. You might remember this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul rebukes Peter. He says... But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 14, same chapter. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what did he do? He took the standard of God's word and he laid it on Peter. And he said, how could you possibly do this? This is wrong. This is wicked. This is not in step with the gospel that you profess to believe. You see what he's doing? He's convicting of sin by convincing of sin. Showing them facts and showing them the wicked nature of sin. And what happened? What happened? Paul rebuked Peter, and he was used by God to bring that man to repentance. Is that not a beautiful thing? This is not just slamming out bad news. This is being the, the ministers of reconciliation, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ that go after the wanderer and bring them back in. That's supposed to be happening in our life. Matthew Henry says this. He says, Christian reproof is ordained by Christ 
for bringing sinners to repentance. This is not a good, just a good idea. This is God's wisdom. This is God's wisdom. That means that this is a means of grace. That you should not withhold from those that you love. This is a means that God uses to restore the wanderer to repentance. Now, not all rebuke is biblical, amen? Not all rebuke is biblical, okay? There can be many things done in the name of Matthew 18 that have nothing to do with what Jesus is commanding here. So not only is it important that we actually confront sin, there are specific ways in God's Word that this is supposed to be happening. I want you to know this because you're not just supposed to learn something today. You're supposed to do this. This is, this is how those interactions that you are going to have as a follower of Christ, this is how they're supposed to go down. Okay? So we're going to spend some time unpacking this. That rebuke that we give is supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be pure. Here's what I mean. Matthew 7, verse, verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there has to be some purity here. Some purity in your own fight against sin in your life. Okay? You can't go and rebuke in hypocrisy. What does this mean? What does this mean? It means you have no business rebuking a member of this church sleeping with their girlfriend if you're looking at pornography four, five, six times a week every day. Or every day. You understand that? You have no business trying to rip that log, out of, that speck out of their eye until you get that log out of your own eye. It's supposed to be done in purity. It's not an opportunity to be hypocritical. You have no business rebuking someone for squandering their mortgage payment at the casinos. If you have cheated on your taxes for five years, you have no business doing this. So Matthew 18 demands that you are fighting personal sin in your own life. You see that? It demands that we are ripping those logs out of our eye so that we can see with gospel lenses to get those specks out of the eyes of our brothers and sisters. It has to be pure. Now, who is without sin in the local church? And no one raises their hand. So what is demanded here is not sinless perfection. There is no such thing as a sinless church member that goes to rebuke another. But there is such a thing as hypocrisy. And that's what we're avoiding. It has to be done in purity. And then the second, it has to be prayerful. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. We taught on this uh, about a month or two ago in this local church. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God shall give him life. And what we said from that passage is that the church's first response to sin is to pray. That we call on God on behalf of our brothers and sisters and we ask the shepherd, bring them back, Lord. 
Restore them to the fold. God, grant them repentance. Cause scales to fall from their eyes. Reveal the wicked nature of sin in their life. Snatch them from the grip of the evil one. So we need to go prayerful. There is no way that we should rebuke a brother and sister that's in sin unless we talk to God first. There's no way. We ask God, God bless this rebuke. Use me in their life to help them see something that they're not seeing. He's the only one that makes it effective. Makes it effective. So we go prayerful. Trusting in God that He's the one that opens the eyes. Next, we th- this rebuke should be scriptural. Here's what I mean by that. Use the Bible. Use God's Word when you talk to someone about sin. Don't use cliches. Don't use uh, vague terminology. Don't use the traditions of man. Don't talk about how somebody dishonored their family or rejected everything that they ever knew. Use verses from the Bible to establish sin. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Two things, for reproof and for correction. It is powerful to this end, so use it. Use God's Word. When you give a rebuke. Next is the rebuke that Jesus has in mind in Matthew 18. It's supposed to be gentle. It's supposed to be gentle. It's supposed to be given in gentleness. So this is that upside down kingdom, right? Okay, this is the world says go drill sergeant on somebody. Scream at them until they respond to you. God's word says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't work. It's an upside down kingdom. And so we go and we desire for this for this radical transformation to happen in their life. But we go with gentleness. We desire something of unimaginable power. But the way we get there is gentleness, gentleness. Listen to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded And a soft tongue will break a bone. Break a bone. Do you know that? So worldly wisdom would say, you want to break a bone, you scream at them and you beat them. And God's word says, he can use weakness. He uses weakness to accomplish his purpose. And a soft word breaks a bone. We come in gentleness. In gentleness. We also come in humility. A Christian rebuke is supposed to be humble. You say, what does that mean? What does that mean? They're the ones that sin. It's supposed to be humble. You're not supposed to be correcting somebody as their moral superior. It says, if your brother sins, you're their equal. You're their equal. You come humble. You come humble to them. Listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Then listen. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Look at that last phrase. You're supposed to be talking about sin in such a way that you're not disinfected from it. It's not that it can never grab a hold of you. You're talking about sin that the same thing that grabbed a hold of them can reach out and grab you at any moment. You know what it's like to sin. 
You know what it's like to be caught in transgression. And so you come humble. You rebuke in a humble way. Humble way. It's also to be patient. Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So you're supposed to go to those situations with some knowledge that there's some things at play when a brother or sister wanders that you can't see. They're entrapped. They have been, there's a measure to which this is true that they have been captured by the devil to do his will and they need God to do something. They need God to grant them repentance in their life. And so what does that demand of us? Those who believe in the sovereign God, that God is the one who grants repentance. Not the volume of my rebuke or the, even the tone of my rebuke. God is the one who does it. What, how does that come out? It comes out patiently. Patiently enduring evil. Say, what do you mean? It means you... It is, it is completely unrealistic for you to, to go with a word of correction to your brother and sister. And you say, here's what I see in your life. And it's not in line with God's word. And they say, I don't agree with you. And you say, I wipe my feet off from you and I'm done with you. That is exactly the opposite mindset. There is no way that you should expect that that repentance comes like a microwave. That you stick the rebuke in and the repentance comes straight back out. That is, that is not the way this works. We are patient, pleading, constantly speaking the truth. Laboring, pursuing them. You see this? It's patient. It's patient. It's the last thing. Christian rebuke is to be private. Stage one in church discipline is to be private. Private. When someone sins in this local church, it is not an opportunity for you to start a rumor. Can you believe what they did? It's not the opportunity for you to call up a close friend and start saying, can you believe what they did? It's not an opportunity for you to seek revenge or to shove that person's face in the mud and seek to reproach them and, 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 just, and just kick it in. It's an opportunity for a private Christian rebuke. Private Christian rebuke. See how loving this is. What Jesus commands here, not only, if this is obeyed, okay, not only does this brother or sister love you enough to confront you, they love your reputation enough to do it privately that no one else knows about it. You ever been loved like that by somebody? That somebody has a word of correction for you and you know all they want is for you to follow Christ. They don't desire any name to be given of, of so-and-so did this in my life. They don't desire any of your sin to be cast out in public. All they want for you is to love and follow the Lord Jesus. Anybody ever been loved like that? By a brother or a sister in Christ? This is supernatural. This is the kingdom of God. This is, this is to mark the relationship of every single church member. If you 
Rebuke your brother and sister, and they hear you. Church discipline, done. You have gained your brother. Praise to the living God. Praise to the living God. And this ought to be the testimony of every local church. That we win the wanderer. We, they go out and they stray and we win them back with a loving rebuke. We go after them and we win them. And I want that to be the testimony of this local church. That we're faithful that the moment we see what we're commanded to do in Matthew 18. We go in love. And God is faithful to use us to win those sheep back into the fold. And I'm convinced of this. You just think about this. This is the body of Christ. That means that by and large, every member is regenerate. That means that you give a rebuke, the Holy Spirit inside those believers is going to respond. Going to respond. And here's what I mean by that. The majority of cases of church discipline should end right here. Why? Because those believers are going to humble themselves majority of times and, re and, and receive your rebuke. You are going to be used by God to bring them back in. The majority of the time, this, this is the case because we're the church. But Jesus tells us that not always. There's going to be a time where you do everything that He commanded you to do here in the way that He commanded you to do it. And they're not going to hear you. And before we transition to stage two, I want to just, I want to just camp out on this. This idea, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Does this have any place in your life as a church member? Does this have any place in your life where it's working itself out in obedience to Jesus? Think about this. This is the members of Grace Community Church. Okay? When is the last time that you saw that you didn't see another member of this church for weeks and weeks and then months at the gathering, at these small groups, and you, in response to that, pursue them, go after them, and confront them about not loving the body of Christ. It's not good for their soul. Just have a place in your life where you see somebody wandering off and you're after them. You're going after them. Or you see a member of this church put something on social media that is borderline, questionable. It might, it might dishonor the name of Jesus. Do you pursue them? Do you have these private conversations or do you call them up and ask them some questions about what they were thinking? Does this have any place in your life? You see a member of this church say an unloving word about their children or about their spouse. Do you just internalize it or do you confront them about their sin in their life in love? In love. Or are you just letting them figure it out for themselves? That's what's at stake here. Love for the body of Christ. And I want you to think about that. When is the last time that this played out in your life? That you rebuked sin, corrected sin, instead of leaving somebody to fend for themselves. Okay? This is what he's commanding us here. Stage two. I'm going to call this the small group correction. We're going to move fast. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, you, you give them a rebuke, and they don't say, 
thank you very much. You're the most godly man or woman I know. Okay? They don't say that. What do you do? You don't wipe your hands off and say, well, told them. Their fault. They'll figure it out. Okay? You do not give up on them. You look around the body of Christ and you find one or two and you say, help me restore this brother or sister. Come help me. I'm going after them. Help me restore them. These are the witnesses. The witnesses. And the purpose of the witnesses in verse 16 is to establish charges. Okay? This has an Old Testament trajectory uh, about charges being established in, in, in Israel's legal system. Deuteronomy 19. Okay? The idea here is they're not necessarily witnesses of the original offense, the original sin. They're witnesses of the confrontation. Okay? Now you got two or three, or now you got two or three sitting across from this wanderer. And, and, and that's a helpful thing. That is a wise and a helpful thing. Try to think this out. Those, those one or two others help, they, they evaluate the rebuke and the response. The rebuke. What, is this actually even a biblical thing that this person is being corrected for? Okay? Is this, is this a Bible thing or is this a preference thing? Is this wanderer trying to be bound with someone's preferences, pet peeves? Or is this, is this a clear deviation from Scripture? It's helpful. They establish that. And then they also are witnesses of the response. How did that brother or that sister respond to these charges? Okay? Was there a lack of brokenness? Was there an indifference towards sin? Was there an anger? That's one of the most common ones. Do you know that? You get rebuked and you say, Yeah, I might have did that, but you didn't tell me right. You're mean in the way you said that to me. It's one of the, one of the gut reflexes of the sinful soul. It's happened to Ryan. It's happened to myself. It's happened to our wives. Because it's human nature. We hate correction. You didn't tell me right. Okay? Not that those things can't happen. But this is one of the most common masks that's thrown up when there's not repentance. And those witnesses help to establish these things. There is not repentance. We didn't see this. We didn't see this. We did see this. Okay? Jesus says, if those witnesses are able to win that brother or that sister, done. Nobody else knows about it. Three people, at the most, have been used by the Lord to, to win the wanderer. Praise God. If they refuse to repent and hear that small group, Jesus intensif intensifies it to stage three. And we're going to call this the church admonition. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. I believe that wisdom tells us that this is the point to where church leaders would get involved. Because almost certainly what's involved in telling it to the church is a public statement at a Christian gathering just like this. Okay, So you think about that. Is that verse saying that anybody in the back of the room can stand up and say... Um, Ryan, or, or, or uh, Jonathan Josie, three unpaid speeding tickets. Three of us saw it, just letting you know. Telling it to the church. <laughs> and I think we all know that that's not how this is supposed to go down. Okay, That who would tell it to the church? The leaders. As the church gathers in Jesus' name. As the church gathers in Jesus' name, this would be made known publicly. Why? To do two things. Okay? To unify the church in opposition to this sin. 
that we are speaking against this sin as one voice in Jesus Christ. We are saying the same thing. We do not approve of what has been done. We do not approve of it. It blasphemes Jesus' reputation on earth. And then the second thing it does is it unites the church in our pursuit of the wanderer. We don't agree with this sin. We stand against it. And we're coming after you in love. Can you imagine that? That an entire local church goes after a wanderer. That is a beautiful picture. At Grace Community Church, that would be 150 plus people going after someone, fleeing for them to repent, to come and believe the gospel, confess your sins, and be forgiven. The world knows nothing of that. That's only in the church. Nothing of that. If that person hears the church, discipline is done, and we get to have a corporate celebration now because everybody just saw it happen. Everybody just saw that, that rebellion happen. And God grant repentance from heaven and turn that sinner back to himself. And we explode with praise to God. Thank you, Lord. And then think about this. What if it doesn't happen? What if he refuses to hear the church? He or she refuses to hear the church. Think about this. A refusal to hear correction is the very opposite of what it means to be a repentant believer. It's the very opposite. It's rejecting of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one, not who is sinless, but who has sinned, confesses it, and comes under the blood of Jesus for forgiveness of sin. And so to refuse that this is the standard and you're wrong is to reject what it means to be a Christian. Which then, it makes perfect sense, right? Is it not hard to imagine a genuine believer rejecting the plea of every single church member in the local church. Every single one of God's people coming after you and you saying, no thanks, I'm going this way. Can you even begin to, to imagine that person being a believer? Which is why Jesus says this in verse 17. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is excommunication. For the congregation removes someone who claims to be a Christian from its membership. This is an imperative in the Greek. Let him be to you. It is the most forceful thing that Jesus says in this passage. It is not an option. And churches that don't do this are in sin. Are in sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a rebuke to a local church that refused to excommunicate an unrepentant sinner. It is a sin for us not to obey what Jesus told us to do. Listen to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Delivering them to Satan. That's not an unloving thing. Because all that means is you are just declaring that they don't belong to Jesus anymore. There is not evidence in their life that they are genuine Christians. Which means that they are not in Christ. Which automatically means what? To not be in the kingdom of Christ is to automatically be in the dominion of darkness. 
That's your only two options. You're either in Satan's kingdom under his dominion, or you are transferred into the kingdom of the Son. And so this is not an unloving thing. This is agreeing with what God says about unrepentant sinners. Nothing unloving about it. Jesus says, treat them as you would a Gentile, a pagan, and a tax collector. And what that means is that they are no longer considered to be a part of God's people. They are no longer considered to be believers because they have rejected what it means to be a repentant follower of Jesus Christ. We are not to hate them, but God's word commands us to cast them out, to remove them from fellowship in the local church. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here we go, back to the keys. The church just is to use the keys to pronounce what God says about unrepentant sinners. What does God say about unrepentant sinners? He says, you are still dead in your sins. You are still bound in your sins. We just agree with Him. We agree with Him. And this is the binding affirmation of a local church. It's a public statement that we can no longer affirm that this brother or this sister is, in fact, a Christian. This is the keys. Certainly, Leadership is involved with this process, but 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 tells us that this penalty is ultimately, at the end of the day, it is delivered by the congregation of Jesus Christ. It is a penalty that is given by the majority, which takes us back to the thrust of this passage. This is the people of God. This is all of our responsibility. To come against sin in the body of Christ. This is our responsibility to use the keys to guard the reputation of Jesus Christ on planet earth. This is church discipline. I'll say a couple of things just in regards to that. Public affirmation. We no longer consider those people to be Christians and believers. Sometimes this comes with tremendous clarity. Absolute certainty. You say, what do you mean? If someone were to say, you know what, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm a Muslim. And, you know, this year I'm going to Mecca, and now I, I serve the God of Islam. It's really clear. Nothing vague about it. We affirm to that person, you are dead in your sins. You have never been a part of Christ Jesus. You are not forgiven of your sins, and we plead with you to repent and flee from coming wrath. Certainty, no vagueness about it. But at other times, there's going to be not quite that absolute certainty that we are telling people, you are not believers. Sometimes we're just going to have to say, there's not an, enough evidence in your life for us to affirm you as a Christian any longer. You think about this with the sin of not attendance. Okay, Somebody misses the, the Christian gathering for a week, two weeks, ten weeks. 20 weeks, 7 months, 8 months, nobody knows where they're at. You have no idea if that person is a Christian. You have no idea if they have renounced the faith. You have no idea if they are blasphemed, if the name of Jesus is being blasphemed among the nations because of personal sin in their life. Why? Because they're not even around. And so that would be an example of, of, of us saying, we're not saying 
Okay, that, that they're dead in sin. We're just saying that we don't know anything about you. We can no longer affirm that we are responsible to you because you're not here. You're not around. You're not committed to this body. These are the keys. Keys. We will never practice church discipline as individual believers or as a local church until we are willing to be temporarily misunderstood. And I want to hammer this. You have to be willing to be under, misunderstood for a little while. Why? Hebrews chapter 12 says, In the moment, all discipline, every single form of it seems painful. Which means that the person undergoing discipline is not going to feel help. They're going to feel hated. It's going to get jumbled in that moment a lot of times. And if you're not willing to let that sit there, to let that misunderstanding sit there in the short run, in hopes that in the long run, Hebrews 12, that you're waiting on this harvest of righteousness that, that, that discipline produces, you'll never rebuke sin. We'll never come against sin unless we're willing to be misunderstood. As we close, I'll mention just three things very quickly. Making this individual in your life. What does church discipline demand of you as a church member? Number one, it demands that you are willing to confront sin. Unrepentant sin. That's been hammered this morning. We won't touch it again. But you can't move past that. You have to be willing to obey Jesus in this area. Number two, is it demands that you are actually involved in people's lives. Do you understand this? If your brother sins, go rebuke him. That presupposes that you're around. That you know what's going on in people's lives. That your life in the body of Christ is intertwined with other members of this body. That you know and are known by others in this body. It presupposes that. That you're a faithful church member. That you're fighting for biblical community in this local church. Number three, lastly. It demands that you actually believe that the gospel is powerful. And here's what I mean by that. You will never confront sin in the body of Christ unless you believe that when somebody believes the gospel, they are made a new creation. They are filled with power from on high. They are given a new heart, a new nature. Obedience is the norm, not abnormal for the believer. It is possible. Unless you believe that, you will not hold anybody to the gospel standard of transformation, of new creation in Jesus Christ. And that same thing can be said for the underpinning. Unless you believe that when somebody lays a hold of the gospel by faith, they are transformed, you're not going to hold that standard up and say, it doesn't, I don't see any fruit of this gospel bearing this transformation in your life. It demands that you actually believe that this gospel is powerful. It's powerful. That Jesus expects obedience and holiness in His church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we ask that You would use it, Lord, in this local church, God. We ask that You would use it to bear fruit. We ask You individually across this room, Lord, we want to obey You we want to be used by you to pursue others in this body. And we ask you to strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord. We ask for the testimony 
that we talked about this morning, God, that you would make Grace Community Church a place where the wanderers are won by members in this body. And we ask you to help us, Lord. Help us to guard your reputation. Help us to uphold you as holy in this city and among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.